0: Produced by Curious Arts. Hello and welcome to A Curious Conversation. This is the second in a series of broadcasts in the run-up to the season of debate. You can find us on Facebook at Curious Arts, on Twitter at Arts Curious, on Instagram at Curious underscore Arts, and by searching for www.curious.art. My name is Alex Meller, and I'll be having a chat with my peers about their work in university. With me is none other than Ratnu Vadia. Welcome to you.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. Uh,
0: Oh, thank you for coming down. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who so, are you? oh, go on.
1: Uh, I'm Ratnu, I'm a fourth year medical student at Newcastle mm-hmm. University. Lovely. I'm quite interested in medical leadership, intellectual disability and one of the areas that I'm passionate about is the role of carers in the NHS.
0: Lovely. So, you've done quite a lot of uh, work, you've really thrown yourself into this field, not just uh, for your university work but also uh, some initiatives. So to say, so would you like to tell us a little bit about them? Uh, the first one being STOMP of all things.
1: So, in my third year, I started to get involved with research, mm. particularly research around intellectual disability and autism. Right. One of the initiatives that's come out of NHS England is something called STOMP. Yep. Which, um, in terms of sort of medical acronyms, um, it stands for stopping the overmedicalization of people with autism, a learning disability, or both.
0: That is quite the mouthful, and I'm glad we've got a little acronym for that. So. The thing that's jumping out at me in there is the the OM, the over-medicalization part of that. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: So often people with learning disabilities or, or with autism can exhibit challenging behavior mm-hmm. because they can't communicate as you or I would. Yes. Their behavior is a means of communicating instead of their words might be. Right. Which means that, say, for example, if somebody's distressed, if somebody's upset, mm. um, there's the chance that they can... Have behaviour which can be perceived as aggressive. I see. Okay. As a result of that, it means that the care providers and people looking after them want a means of effectively calming them down.
0: I see. Okay.
1: You know, people with quite complex needs can be given antipsychotics or pentadiazepines as a form of sedation.
0: Things that may not be suitable for them.
1: Exactly. So it may be suitable to, in order to get them to, to calm down for that sort of initial point but long-term... You're
0: you're addressing the symptoms, not the causes. Exactly, exactly, Mm. because
1: you're not addressing why somebody's actually feeling distressed in the first place. Right. So what the STOMP initiative does is it's essentially highlighting to clinicians, highlighting to doctors, nurses, GPs, etc., trying to look at what psychotropic medication are these people prescribed and why they prescribed it. Mm -hmm. My role within that specifically is looking at the prescriptions that are given to clients within inpatient units I see. in the northeast mm. so it's identifying what medication have they been prescribed yep what's the rationale why have they been prescribed it and if they have been prescribed it inappropriately what are the structural and policy changes that can be done differently to make sure that these patients ultimately are being given medication only when wow. they really need it
0: I see so no one's in, in truth no one's really at fault with these things when you talk about like um looking into things there's a tendency for it to come off as quite you know we're trying to find someone to blame there's no one really to blame in all of these issues it's just uh, a misunderstanding is that the right way of putting it or
1: so you're right there isn't really anyone anyone to blame mm. but the, the, the whole idea being that ultimately the health service is, is quite stretched yes well, and mm. people don't have as much time to spend with their clients um, with people with autism with their own disabilities as they may like
0: oh so this is one way that it may just be easier to say here here is something like you like say antipsychotics uh again something that may not be suitable in the long term but is a quick fix
1: yeah exactly and the issue is wow. that these patients are, are on them for years and years and years it could have de- well all sorts of side effects yeah mm. with, with any drug there are side effects mm. particularly so with mental health drugs wow and all of this in your fourth year of yeah university. so i mean i've been working on it since um since i, I, I was in third year wow yeah um so obviously it's, it's something which is taking up some of my free time. Mm. But I think ultimately it's worthwhile. it's important to have the information, have that data to better influence policy. Mm.
0: I see. Okay, so you're in your, uh, You say you're talking about different years of university. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, like, say, you're, you're at Newcastle yeah. studying uh, uh, medicine. And there's a lot of, let's say, mystique about going to university and stud- studying medicine again. You're, you're in there for five years compared to a normal three. Like, What's that like? There's, there's, like I say, lots of rumors, lots of uh, don't just stories, I guess. Can right. you can you confirm any of these rumors? Anything like that, that about uni- about medical school and university? Well,
1: unfortunately, it's not quite like House. It's not oh. quite like Scrubs. <laughs> uh, I think you go in with the with the expectation mm. that you know you'll be on the wards twenty four seven. You'll yeah. be like handling crisis patients, mm. really quite baps and by fire. Yeah, I crash think. carts the whole nine yards. But. In reality, people tend to learn best through a variety Mm. of different ways. I see, okay. So our first couple of years aren't that clinical. We spend it in lectures, we spend it in seminars and tutorials, learning more about the human body and how it works. There's no point trying to rush and jump straight into a hospital when really you have have no clue. Mm. But towards the sort of later end of the course, we have more clinical time. Mm. We're pretty much on the wards, nine to five, Monday to Friday, in GP surgery, seeing what life really is like on the shop front.
0: That's the only way to really do it. Like I say, first year, you're not really, you know, carving people open and probing around inside chest cavities and all that sort of stuff. Okay, so again, uh, with university, um, there's something that uh, you brought up to me, and it's specifically carers within the NHS. Yeah. Um, And you shared with me a uh, a BBC News segment uh, about clinicians as carers specifically, which again will be linked uh, in the description and in the show notes. So tell me a little bit about that, because again, you, your uh, your father, of all people, uh, featured quite heavily on this as well. So can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So when we think of somebody that's that's a carer, the first thing that springs to mind is perhaps the elderly woman who's looking after her husband who has yes. Alzheimer's, um, the husband that's caring for for the wife with a mental illness. I see. But one of the things that doesn't really come across is the fact that carers can, can be anyone. Mm. Caring is is such a leveler because almost everybody will experience some sort of um, difficulty or health issue in their life. Mm. And unfortunately for some people that means they're not able to fully look after themselves anymore. I see. Particularly with with an aging population, we have people that are are getting older and tend to become more dependent on others Mm. for for basic self-care. The reason why we got involved in this was because both of my parents work in the NHS, Mm. but my younger brother has quite severe learning disabilities. Right. Which means that there's that combination role First and Mm. foremost, you're seeing patients on the shop floor, Yes. but at the same time, you're caring inside the home as well, which means that fundamentally, there's no sort of off switch.
0: Yeah, there's there's no barrier. Your your work life and your personal life, so your home life will bleed together.
1: Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm actually interested in intellectual disability in the first place, trying to improve the lives of people Mm. with special needs.
0: I see. So... Again, this specifically, it's the carers within the NHS. Yeah. So talk talk to me about this. Um. Again, it, it, the the thing that I'm I'm struggling to wrap my head around is the, it, it, it's the why is this? If we've got carers at home, you know, do we just not have the uh, the resources and the the ability to look after them within institutions? Is it? Easier to look after people at home um, and to model sort of home life and uh, that sort of personal life around these sorts of things, or would we be better off in a an institution uh, or dedicated uh, place of care.
1: So, most of the time, people will much prefer to be at home. Mm. They're in an environment where people know them very well. They love them and they are devoted to them. Yeah. And fundamentally, institutions are seen as a relic and I think of the oh, past. We're moving away from more care in in institutions. Uh, we're shifting more towards care in the community. Okay. Ultimately, people with, with special needs will tend to do better, surrounded by the people they love and in, in an environment that they're familiar with.
0: Uh, I get you now.
1: But the key thing about carers in the NHS is that as, as a population, carers are vastly overrepresented. Mm-hmm. If we think in terms of the general UK population, about one in seven, one in eight, could be classed as a carer.
0: Wow, that that broad.
1: Yeah, exactly. It could be your your, your bus driver, your, your, your teacher, people that you walk past in the streets, mm-hmm. they will more likely have a caring role at home as well.
0: I'd be like, say this could be anything from as simple as you know uh, uh, an elderly relative, all the way to a, a relative or person you care about with a learning difficulty. Absolutely, I, I suppose that's probably why it's so. It's so it's a broad uh, title, I suppose. Yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, but please go on.
1: But the thing about NHS staff is that they're actually overrepresented in that population. Mm-hmm. If we think about one in seven in terms of the UK population, yeah, about one in five NHS staff right could be classed as a carer. Okay. Which means that you're both caring inside the workplace and yeah. caring outside the workplace as well.
0: So, um, talk to me about this. Uh, the, the so you say one in five uh, NHS workers are also carers. Yeah, that like you say there's there, there's no there's no off switch there's no barrier that must be well an immense um, immense strain uh, um, uh, an immense pressure. You know you talk about. Uh, doctors and nurses working insane hours on the ward, but then have to go home and, like say, not switch off. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. For some, it can be quite a big motivator. So, say, say, for instance, the care role that I had before leaving for university mm. it inspired me to learn more, and it's why I'm taking part in the research that I'm doing. Oh, I see, okay. But at the same time, it can be quite stressful. Mm. Not only are you dealing with quite high-risk patients at work, yep. um, quite literally life-or-death situations, mm. But you 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 come home to that as well. There's a risk of stress, there's a risk of burnout. People take long-term sick leave. Yeah, and ultimately that's detrimental not only to the people working in the health service, yeah, but to the health service as a whole.
0: Uh, I see. So while while you may have the skills uh, and the appropriate training to help look after someone at home, you know, with that professional level, like say, if you're not getting your sleep, you're coming into work and you you know, like say, it's a big risk.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's untenable over mm. a long course of time because there's no off switch. Because you're constantly looking after somebody one way or another, it means that people can be quite prone to stress to burn out all of these mm. things. And this knock-on effect means that they, if they take sick leave, for instance, that means the NHS has lost a doctor, a nurse, yes. somebody working there mm-hmm. as they you know take time off to recharge.
0: Okay. So you mentioned about... Um Care within the community, yeah, um, and that—that—that—that's wanted me to ask the question: What can be done to support these carers?
1: So support comes from lots of different ways. It can be as simple as having respite care, okay, where the person that they're caring for spends a night a week, two nights a week, um, somewhere else, just to sort of give the person caring for them a bit of a break. Yes, there's also ways that employers can change so. in terms of more more flexible working. Ah, say for instance, okay. if you are caring for um, somebody with terminal cancer, for instance, mm. and uh. they need to attend an urgent hospital appointment, yes, it's good to have that employer level of flexibility, mm. which means that you can say to your boss, I can't come in this afternoon, I have to take so-and-so to an appointment. Yes, And that is something which is important to sort of push and promote, mm. particularly towards NHS employers.
0: Yes. Okay. Um, and again, that takes my next question. Like, w- well, what can the general public do? as a as a whole it's so like i assume if if you know somebody uh who is uh doing it was in this caring role like say you can offer them uh, uh respite care so I, I can i can help here and there but, but also like what can the general public do do you think
1: so the role for the general public can be as simple as perhaps making a cup of tea really if uh wow. if someone's feeling stressed and if someone's <laughs> feeling a, a bit low particularly if they've got challenging things going on at home mm. as well as challenging things going on at work. Just, Really simple things like that can be a step. Secondly, it's having conversations, actually normalising the fact that somebody is caring outside of their of their job as well. Okay. There's often some stigma associated with with having a caring role. Employers might think, Hang on,
0: that? I mean, I, that, the, I I do have to stop you there. A, a stigma with the caring role that has to be that can't be real, right? Especially not within within the NHS itself. I mean, aren't aren't you all carers by definition? Or
1: I think that there's a, a distinction between when you view somebody as um, a professional working, mm. and when you see them as a care role at home. Uh, often people can can feel that these staff may not be able to contribute fully to their job.
0: Oh, if their mind's in two separate places.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, 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 wow. And if their if their commitment's are shifted between two different places as well.
0: I can take you back. Like you say, uh, it's detrimental if you've got. Uh, if you're overworked at home as well as at work.
1: Exactly. So people often don't feel confident in sharing, you know, this is what I do at home. Right. This, uh, th- th- These are the challenging circumstances w- which, which I am faced in. Mm. But at the same time, there's often a sense of pride that comes from caring.
0: Oh, I, I, can, I can imagine. You know, you're doing something that's noble.
1: There's a the sense of duty and, and a sense of responsibility that comes from mm. looking after somebody that you love. Yes. And one of the things that I'm quite keen to advocate for is saying that, Essentially, if you're doing this at home as well, you Mm -hmm. have so many more skills, you have so much more personal experience, which you can then apply to your job. Yes. Think about it. If you're looking after somebody who has special needs at home, and then you go into work and look after somebody with special needs there, you can take your skills, you can take your personal experience, Mm -hmm. and then apply it to your job to get better outcomes and ultimately happier patients.
0: Oh, wow. Always turning a negative into a positive there.
1: Absolutely. Um, These people are such a wonderful resource. and It's important that we are... Advocate for them as much as possible. I
0: see. That, that is quite a, uh, you hit the nail on the head there. um So, to kind of swing away from uh, Stomp and unpaid carers, uh, I'd like to ask you what do you think are some of the challenges facing the youth of today, specifically of our generation, our age bracket?
1: Oh, you I'm, could, uh, I'm getting you on, on for days about this.
0: Well, we haven't got days, <laughs> but uh, however long you want.
1: There's obviously things like the job market, the housing market, mm. house prices are going up disproportionately high compared to wages. Yeah. It can be quite difficult to, to find a job that's that's well-paying.
0: Well, I suppose there'll always be a need for doctors and carers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, carers and uh, unpaid carers are by their name unpaid. Well, yeah. Um, but doctors, yeah, there's quite a big demand for them. Mm. But because of the stresses and uh, increasing strains of medical practice, yep. lots of... Foundation doctors aren't actually taking that leap and continuing on with hospital medicine.
0: Hang on, So you're you're in when you say foundation doctors. Yeah. That's your first five years, first three years, correct? So it's
1: it's the first two years after you graduate from medical school.
0: Wow, and then they're not taking that leap. That is, uh, why is that?
1: There's lots of different factors. Often working conditions can be it can be quite tricky.
0: Well, if you're twelve hours on the ward, sort of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's not. You know, I, I I I fortunately never had to go to an ER, but I've known people who have it's not i can understand that it's, it's obviously
1: quite, quite a stressful uh, an yeah. environment and and the nature of medicine is is shifting more towards sort of increased responsibility and more towards sort of people may not feel as supported as they did say 10 20 years ago
0: really so you say they, they might not feel that way supported where's that sort of feeling come from is it you know cut pay uh, less resources
1: i think it's, it's, a, it's a combination of uh of, of all those things really interesting survey that said mm. that only thirty-eight percent of Foundation Two doctors after your second year of um, hospital medicine actually continue on and go into a training program. Mm. The rest may take take breaks, may leave yeah. to go somewhere else, wow. for example, Australia, New Zealand, mm. or may pursue something else other than other than medicine. Okay,
0: so uh, on that sort of note, when you talk about leaving university and, yeah. uh, and, as, and as a challenge, um, uh, you know, uh, what do you think will be The challenges, or have you experienced any of them yourself?
1: Uh, Thankfully, I'm quite insulated because (laughs) I've got a couple more years left. Oh, lovely! At university,
0: what do you think's waiting for you right around the corner? (laughs)
1: Um, The joys of actually working in a hospital. Oh wow! Yeah, I think that we've we we are trained so much for it. It would be a shame to sort of let that go. Mm. I don't think it's a challenge so much as opportunity. Yeah when you when you leave medical school because not only are you finally getting into the world of work mm. but you're also actually taking part in the thing that you've been training for and that you signed up for yes all those years ago wow. which makes it all the more shocking if you actually want to leave in the first place mm.
0: so uh, you, you mentioned the training tell me a little bit more of that like so tell me a little bit more about that again i can only uh, guess what are the sort of things that they prepare you for
1: well they prepare you for anything that you might encounter um on oh, the wards in, in A&E, in, in GP surgeries. Mm. Obviously, you can't account for every single possible medical condition that can, that can come waiting up. I'm
0: for a but. But you are trained
1: <laughs> to not only escalate care to uh, consultants, mm. specialist registrars, or yeah. those other people, but you're also trained in how to actually deal with quite challenging situations. Yes. Say, for instance, Newcastle's exceptional medical school at mm. teaching their doctors how to communicate with patience.
0: Yeah, because that's something that I mean you talk about bedside manner. Yeah. And again, that's something that I suppose most people who are in those sorts of regions don't take into account how much that and you know uh, how much training goes into that and keeping yourself composed when you know people are screaming, people are panicking, people are stressed. Yeah. Um, so I suppose there's a level of, of respect there uh, and being able to compose yourself. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more of that sort of training?
1: Well, often you'll you'll go through sort of scenarios. Yeah. and you're assessed in these things called OSCEs, okay, which stands for Ob- Objective Structure Clinical Assessment another one of those NHS yes, uh, acronyms absolutely the, 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 this one's a, a worldwide one mm. but what you do is you yeah. are in a clinical encounter and you're assessed on it uh-huh. say for example you go into a station and a patient is complaining that um, their mother has, has, has had a fall on the ward and they want to talk to you about it oh wow what would you say to them how mm. would you do it and how would you essentially reassure that patient
0: Okay, so like say, my mother's just fallen down on the ward and I want to talk to you. Like, again, so is, is there a, 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 a battle plan per, uh, per se, and like, you know, a, a steps to follow?
1: There are. There's a structure, I wouldn't exactly call it a battle plan. That oh, implies no. your, You're at war with your patients and their, <laughs> there and you their families. <laughs> you're, you're very much on the same side and you're very yes. much wanting to support them. Mm. Um, again, ultimately, yeah, ultimately it's about responding to what, what their needs are, understanding what their concerns are, mm. and essentially getting the best outcomes for them. Mm
0: see. Okay, so I've got to ask uh, to take it back to the original topic, which was um, challenges exiting university. Do you have any advice, you know, for people who might might be going through this, you know, who might be uh, maybe in your position of just about to come out of university, maybe they've got a year, year and a half left, um,
1: and they're they're they're, fe- they're they're looking down the barrel of re- facing these responsibilities. <laughs> Um, I mean, if I'm in the same situation as them, I'm not sure the advice I'd give is particularly pertinent, given that I'm not actually left <laughs> university yet. But yeah. I think one of the key sort of principles that, that, that guides me through is think about why you joined in the first place. Mm. And think about the patients on the end of it, the actual impacts, and the change you're going to bring about in their lives. Is that quite common? Medical students who have uh,
0: have had their decision to join medicine informed by their their wanting to... Uh, to to help people at the end of it, their own personal experiences.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't spend five, six years going through... (laughs) Just for the money, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately the money isn't uh, what people think it is.
0: Uh, I'm not going (laughs) to even broach on that sort of topic, because it's a whole other rabbit hole. But Wow. Okay, so let's finish on one thing as well. You got any good stories coming out of university? We're going to completely shift tone here. Any good stories? I mean, none that are probably suitable for... uh, (laughs) Broadcasting well, well, maybe nothing too awful, but you know, maybe something a bit more uplifting. You know, you you talk about these um, uh, experiences within hospitals, like you know, success stories. Then you know, you always hear about like, oh, this is so and so, and and something horrible has happened to him, but but he's got better. You know, it's you know, it's always like, yeah, you might have lost a leg, but now you can you can still walk on it. You know, it's that sort of thing. Any you know, success stories, I suppose.
1: Yeah, actually. there are a couple of patients that I've seen that really, really stick out to me. Yeah. One of the things which Newcastle does as a medical school is that they bring patients with lived experience of, of illnesses to, 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 to do some of the teaching.
0: Wow, that must be absolutely invaluable.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because you're, you're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth, as yes. it were. One, one chap that really stuck out to me was a guy with quite debilitating MS, which is multiple sclerosis.
0: Yeah, uh, I I know about
1: MS. He... he was really quite quite unwell but one of the highlights of his day was coming in to tell the medical students about it Mm. we do examinations neurological examinations on him yes and the very act of him coming and Mm. you know sharing his his condition with us and us learning from it yeah that was beneficial both ways not only does he feel listened to does he feel supported and not only does he feel he's actually having an impact on training the mm. doctors of the next generation we are also using such a valuable resource which is the actual patients themselves yes learning from them mm. and learning what what we can do to help improve their lives
0: i see Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, and thank you very much uh, for sharing that with me. Thank you for having Um, me. Like I say, this has been a Curious Conversation with Ratnew Vadia. Um, I've been Alex Meller, and uh, you can find us on Facebook at Curious Arts, on Twitter at Arts Curious, uh, at Instagram at Curious underscore Arts, and by searching uh, www.curious.arts. Like I say, my name is Alex Meller, and this has been a Curious Conversation. Thank you very much for coming on.